Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast, brought to you by the Maryland Association of Counties. I'm Kevin Canale, MAKO's Policy Associate, and I am joined today by a special guest, MAKO's Legal and Policy Counsel, Les Knapp. Les, how are you today? I'm fine, Kevin. Hello, everyone. And it's great to have you here today, Les, especially because today we're going to talk about renewable energy with a focus particularly on solar energy. We're going to talk about Maryland's Renewable Portfolio Standard and how it relates to local governments. We're going to discuss MAKO legislation that passed last session that gave local governments a greater voice in where utility-scale energy-generating facilities should be located within their boundaries. And finally, we'll discuss potential challenges ahead. Now, Les, let's first discuss Maryland's Renewable Energy Portfolio Standard. Uh, Obviously, this requires renewable energy sources that uh, generate specified percentages of Maryland's electricity supply each year uh, will increase to 25% by 2020, and that includes a 2.5 increase from solar-generated solar um, energy. Is that correct? That's correct, Kevin. That standard, the 25% by 2020 with 2.5% of that total coming from solar, was enacted around 2004-2005. Obviously, MAKO recognizes the role um, that renewable energy plays in helping to meet Maryland, um, you know, get to its green energy goals. But there are some challenges for local governments, um, especially because there's talk of increasing the renewable energy portfolio standard to 50% during the 2018 session. Any insight there? Have you heard anything about the potential of that happening? There will definitely be legislation put in by a coalition of environmental groups to raise the RPS standard to 50% by 2030 of renewable energy. There's several other pieces within the renewable portfolio standard that do intersect with with county governments. I think broadly, this is not a direct county issue, but there are several pieces within the RPS that we do need to watch and be cognizant of. First would be the fact that right now, waste-to-energy plants are included within the RPS standard, so they count for some credit there. If the the environmental community in their legislation has specifically stated they would take those out. So that may have some impact on some counties. Another secondary issue, obviously, is just like everyone else, counties are electric ratepayers, and if this were to drive up the cost of electricity in Maryland, that would have a direct effect on counties and their budgets simply because we use electricity like everyone else. Finally, another issue that needs to be watched carefully is whether or not the proposed legislation would require that all of that energy, if it passes and became 50%, all that renewable energy has to be generated in Maryland or not. Right now, under the current RPS, the 25% by 2020, that can include renewable energy that we import from out of state, and that's certainly being done. Okay, so let me stop you there. And I want to get into all of that and all of those potential issues. But first, let's define utility scale, because I think it's important for people to understand that when we're talking about utility scale, there's a big difference between that and what someone who wants to put a few solar panels on their roof or a farmer who wants to uh, put some solar panels on his or her farm to generate some energy. Can you just tell us what utility scale means? Because that's going to be important for us moving forward in this podcast. Basically, when you're specifically talking about solar energy, you kind of have three levels. 
First is, uh, as Kevin noted, you, you want to put some solar panels on your home or the rooftop of your business. And that's pretty much handled through local zoning, local covenants. Uh, even your homeowners association may have some restrictions on that. But that that is not really where these issues are. Secondarily is your slightly larger facilities, sometimes called community solar. That's where a local government or a, a business or um, even even a farmer may want to have an acre or, or so or even a couple of acres of solar panels on a site. For a county, it may be on a landfill site or a park and rec area and generate a little electricity and, and use it for their own usage and potentially, if they generate a little surplus, feed just a little bit back into the grid. The utility scale are your very large plants specifically designed to put energy into the grid. They require a high voltage connection and access to the grid. The grid in that region where they're located has to have the capacity to take in a large amount of electricity. And we're talking at, at a minimum roughly 10 acres uh, up to hundreds of acres for the, these projects. And the key thing with that is unlike community solar and rooftop solar, which is largely regulated at the local level and subject to local zoning and land use, these large sites, the state through the Maryland Public Service Commission has the power to preempt any local zoning for those. So what we had, what was happening and, and what continues to happen is you have these large companies from Maryland and, and maybe outside of Maryland, as far away as California, who are coming into Maryland, who see a major opportunity, particularly on the eastern shore, but also um, throughout Maryland, they see all of this open land, this agricultural land, and they see a lot of room to put utility-scale solar projects in these areas. And instead of going to the local governments, they go directly to the Public Service Commission because the Public Service Commission can override any local government zoning. Is that right? That's what's been happening here? To some extent, yes. Um, And they're not all bad players. That's important to point out. Yes, it is. And, and and there are – Maryland, we've seen a gold rush basically for large-scale solar coming into the state. Solar has been heavily subsidized in the past, but the economics of the market are changing. Uh, the costs have come down and the technology has improved. So, so solar is a much more viable option just economically than it once was. And while it is still subsidized, some of those subsidies are starting to slowly wear away. Second, obviously, solar is green energy. It's clean energy. There's a lot of environmental benefits to that. And third, having some of these large-scale sites um, – makes it a better, more secure grid rather than having a single localized power plant that could potentially be subject to a natural disaster or a a attack. Instead, you have a much more dispersed energy grid that's harder to knock out all of your generation sources. Maryland's also very well situated for this because we have a lot of flat open space that gets a lot of sun. So this makes Maryland a very attractive state for solar. And as Kevin said, This is occurring across most of the state. Really, for solar, good solar projects, you just simply need an area where the sun shines well, large, flat, open space, and a connection, a high-voltage connection to the grid. And and you're especially seeing a lot of proposals for the eastern shore because of its its large amount of farmland and open space. But 
most counties in the state, you're seeing challenges, and sometimes even in urban areas. There's been an instance where a solar company has proposed a development on land that was annexed by a municipality as part of its growth plan. Uh, and, and you've had other uh, historical sites, preserved lands. This has generated some challenges. Absolutely. So after the break, we're going to come back and talk about some of those challenges and talk about legislation that MAKO introduced last year. It was actually a 2017 MAKO legislative initiative that addressed some of these concerns. We'll get into that after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast, brought to you by the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale here with Les Knapp, and we're talking today about renewable energy, particularly solar. And I want to get into now some of the challenges that these utility-scale projects um, have brought to local governments in Maryland. And specifically, MAKO introduced a bill last year, House Bill 1350, that passed Um, That gave local governments a greater voice in where these utility-scale projects should be located within their boundaries. And Les, I guess the the three main concerns for local governments and where these these sites are located, first of all, we have prime agricultural soils, we have culturally or historically important lands, and then we have environmentally sensitive lands. And then on top of that, uh, local governments should have a say and where these are cited. So can you talk about the legislation that was introduced and passed last year and why it was so important for local governments? Sure. And and let me uh, state right up front, I, Kevin nailed it when he said that land use and, and the impacts on local lands and planning um, can be very upset if you have one of these large-scale sites go in in an area that just doesn't work for the county's comprehensive plan or zoning. But there's also other effects that directly impact a county, and that includes impact on local economies, particularly uh, where you have agriculture in many areas of the state and you're in the rural areas. That's still one of the primary economic drivers. And if you have a large number of these facilities go in, taking away not only prime soils, you can also run the risk of upsetting your local agricultural economy, losing farming jobs, negatively impacting your support industries for agriculture. So while you will gain potentially a few jobs and some tax benefits if you do it properly from a solar site, you also have to balance that against the loss of of both primary and secondary jobs in the agricultural or potentially the tourism sector if this uses open space. So this was very important for MAKO to weigh in on, and House Bill 1350 was a legislative initiative last session to try to give counties more of a voice in this process. And that bill did three things, right? Can you talk talk us through the bill and just give us a general overview of what the bill did and what it does now for local governments? Sure. And this bill ultimately was MAKO worked with a strange coalition of groups on this bill, some groups such as Thousand Friends of Maryland that aren't normally aren't normally um, on the side of MAKO or the counties. 
uh, in many land use issues, but here they saw the importance of giving a, a local role in this issue because of the impacts that we've just talked about. Right. So we worked with the PSC. We worked with uh, other local governments, environmental groups, land conservation and historic preservation groups, energy developers, and public utilities to draft and pass House Bill 1305. So there's a large group of stakeholders involved. That's correct. And, and it's very important to note we did work with energy developers. We recognize the importance of, of that there need to be some of these large-scale facilities and that, frankly, the state will put its foot down and use its preemption authority if we don't do a, a reasonable job in zoning. So what this bill did, House Bill 1350, it basically required the Public Service Commission, when it's reviewing one of these large uh, utility-scale Projects, and this applies to any energy generation technology, not just solar. So, this is not just solar, it's important. Yes. But it basically says that the commission, as part of its reasoning, has to give due consideration to whether or not one of these projects is consistent with the comprehensive plan and the zoning for any county or municipal corporation where that project is going to be located. The Public Service Commission must also give due consideration to the efforts of the affected parties, which includes the the uh, project proposer, as well as the local involved local government, to resolve any issues presented by the county or affected county or municipal corporation. And then this was really put in to make sure that we want to make sure the energy developers are acting in good faith, and that if a county raises an issue such as we're okay with working with you to have a project here, but we want to have vegetative set uh, either setbacks or vegetative buffers, that the developer is willing to consider those things. And this would say basically um, is meant to discourage the bad actors who uh, come in and there have been a few. They aren't transparent. They try to work around local governments. As Kevin said, they don't necessarily feel like they need to come to us and they don't really care about the community they're going into. There's a lot of developers that do, and I think try to be good stewards and want to have good relationships with the counties, but this is designed to stop those that aren't. So if a county wants to zone for any energy generating project at utility scale, then they could go through this, what we called an enhanced zoning process, right? And and that would set the table for all of this to to be put into motion for the PSC to consider that enhanced zoning when determining whether or not a project should be located there. Yes, and and it it really isn't an enhanced zoning process. It's just amending or updating your existing zoning. Mm -hmm. And MACO has worked with several counties on on what we feel – are, are the best practices to, to come up with a solution that works for your individual county. We're very much against a one-size-fits-all mandate here, but we also want to make sure uh, you minimize the chances of the Public Service Commission overriding your zoning once you've gone through the work and put it into place. And we've identified several factors working with the PSC to the extent they will provide information, and the PSC provide does look at each of these on a case-by-case basis. So they cannot say if you automatically put X requirements in your zoning, it'll be good, or we they cannot say give us your zoning proposal and we'll say if it passes must or not. Unfortunately, you won't know until they make an actual ruling. Okay, so 
this does not give a county to the authority to say we don't want this uh, renewable energy generation anywhere in our county and just completely banning it from the county, correct? That is correct. And the PSC has, while they haven't given much, they've made it pretty clear that they would not hesitate to use preemption in a jurisdiction that has good project sites and has just said, oh, we're just going to ban them completely. So as part of the zoning process, counties have to take several steps, I think, to to keep the PSC from preempting them and, and to have the PSC give deference to the local zoning. One of them is you've got to come up with some viable project sites within your jurisdiction. So you just can't say we ban it. Uh, and that means that you've got to consider the criteria. And, and for solar, as I said, you're talking about flat, open land, good sun, and, and a connection to a high voltage, uh, high voltage connection to a, the grid where the grid can take that energy in. Secondly, as you put your ordinance, zoning ordinance together, you need to consider the viewpoints from all affected stakeholders. Much like this legislation was ultimately put together, you need to involve your government groups, uh, your local public utilities, solar developers, uh, representatives from agriculture, preservation, and local community groups. And third and finally, clearly establish local criteria for solar energy signing. Don't don't make it vague. Be very specific so that uh, both your residents and solar developers have a good understanding of where they can go and can't go in your county in order to put projects. So reaching out to the community and and making them aware of what's happening is vitally important, obviously. Um, Engaging all of these state groups from the beginning, acting in good faith, and coming up with areas that, as you said, are viable for these energy sources that do get that direct sunlight for solar, that have access to the high-voltage lines. And if you're able to do all of that and come up with an area within your county that you say, okay, this is where we'd like them to go, then you can go uh, to the to the PSC can review that and say, this they, they did everything the right way, this makes sense, this is where the projects need to be located, and that way you can preserve your environmentally sensitive land, your prime agricultural soils, um, culturally significant areas, and you'll have a say this way. Whereas before this bill passed, it was open open season for these utility-scale developers where they could come in and the PSC could override any local government zoning. That's correct. And, and as you work through, one size does not fit all. We worked very hard, MAKO, other stakeholders, to, to acknowledge that you don't have to have your zoning done for utility-scale solar in one specific way. For example, a number of counties, once this bill passed, imposed a short-term moratorium on all utility-scale development within their jurisdiction while they worked on this. And those moratoriums typically were from about six months to eight months to, to consider their zoning ordinance. They the, the good counties, I think, formed work groups and considered different stakeholder opinions, as I said, and, and came out with uh, zoning requirements. And they took different approaches. Kent County, which has actually... I think may have been one of the first counties to really take a a good look at this issue before this bill even passed. And some of there were some proposed sites within Kent that kind of drove the the creation of this bill that they were in contested areas. Kent County had basically gone through and actually zoned out on a map 
where viable project sites could be located versus not. And they wanted to protect their prime farmlands, their ag corridor, and and other areas. So they, they kind of literally mapped it out parcel by parcel. On the other hand, uh, Talbot County recently after this bill passed went through this process and they came up with a very wide area of their land and said you can develop a solar utility scale solar facility anywhere within this wide overlay of land but once it hits a certain amount of acres in the aggregate you're done they did not put a size limit on any individual project they just put an overall acreage total and said that's it Frederick County uh, took the opposite approach in that they they zoned out specifically where it could go, but they also put a 40-acre limit on the size of any project. And that, that, I think, has raised some eyebrows. The PSC on that issue did recently uh, preempt Frederick County for uh, the location of a, a solar facility, and I believe the opinion really hinged on this 40 acre limit so it's clear that the psc when you start talking about a limit on individual projects that may be too much for the psc to take so i would i would caution on any county that's considering this going for a a size of at least as low as 40 acres it would need to be in at least i think in the hundreds of acres to potentially meet PSC expectations. Caroline County is just going through this process and I think is finalizing their ordinance. They may actually uh, adopt it by the end of this year. Uh, So they're in the process and they kind of have a hybrid approach where they're identifying specific parcels where solar could go, but then they're also putting on a, I think it's a 3,000 acre aggregate cap for development there. And that was developed with uh, all of the affected stakeholders. So there's many ways you can approach this. I know, Les, you were just down in Caroline County. Uh, You've been talking to all of our counties about the way this could affect them and what they can do, helping them to bring stakeholders to the table, explaining the process to them. And you've been very hands-on. So anyone who has any questions about this, if you want uh, to amend your current zoning um, to include these type of provisions, you can always reach out to Mako, specifically Les. Um, he's been the driver behind this, and he was the driver behind last year's bill, got it through the General Assembly, worked with all the stakeholders, and got this done. And again, it's important to mention House Bill 1305 um, gives county governments, local governments, a much greater say, as long as you're willing to do it the right way, bring everybody to the table, and where these utility-scale projects can be cited within your boundaries. So next, Les, I want to talk about this idea of raising the renewable portfolio standard to 50%, and some folks even are talking about 100%. And while many people would say, well, that really doesn't affect local governments, when you start talking about raising the standard, and then, as you mentioned earlier, making this standard, requiring a lot of this renewable energy to actually be generated within Maryland... That's going to create significant land use pressures on counties, correct? Yes, most definitely, uh, particularly if there's a provision in there that all of this energy has to be generated in state. Right. And it's unclear or not whether that provision will make the final cut of the environmentalist proposed bill. But uh, to the extent you increase and raise the renewable energy portfolio standard, you're going to raise the amount of solar Within that subsection, it will not be 2.5% of 50%. They're going to increase that commensurately. 
and and maybe even increase it beyond um, that that amount. So that's going to put more pressure on uh, solar developers to come in and and find sites on county lands or municipal lands, and and so that's going to put uh, initial pressure on this. Furthermore, th- there are also uh, rumblings that we will see legislation that will also make it easier and open up lands for solar development, which could could run counter to what we were able to accomplish in House Bill 1350. So last year, I know House Bill 863, the, the right to solar farm, uh, again, from the 2017 session, that would have allowed broad solar development on lands um, subject to a Maryland Agricultural Land Preservation Foundation easement a Maryland Environmental Trust easement or management by the Royal Legacy Board, that is is sort of what we're talking about here, where this this problem of opening these lands up, and if you're requiring a component in this to be, you know, the energy has to be generated within Maryland. I mean, do you see uh, these sort of issues popping up again with the legislation you just mentioned that we could see coming in, sort of this right to solar farm anywhere in Maryland issue? I think that is certainly a, a serious risk. Now, that bill ultimately was pulled by its sponsor, mm-hmm. Chairman Kuar Barve, uh, chair of the House Environment and Transportation Committee. And, but he has indicated and worked over this interim that he's going to introduce something. But not that bill. Correct. Not that bill. Mm-hmm. But he has not, I think, been particularly uh, focused on local governments and then and taking into account their role in having a voice. So th- there are a lot of concerned stakeholder groups out there as to what ultimately will come out about this. And there are some sectors within the solar utility-scale solar industry that are certainly pushing and, and would love, obviously, for less regulation and less voice. And that could include rolling back or undermining what was done last year. So again, we do recognize the role that utility-scale solar plays in in helping to meet Maryland's green energy goals. But when we're talking about preserving prime agricultural soils, um, culturally or historically important lands, and environmentally sensitive lands, local governments are in the best position to identify those lands, those areas. And I think this is a very, very Um, good faith effort to say, look, we're going to work with everybody here. We want you all to come to the table, but you need to take these considerations because we're in the best spot. We know where these lands are. Our citizens are telling us uh, they hold us accountable. And so undoing last year's legislation is obviously a major concern. But talk about the culturally and historically important lands, because I know you and I have talked about this before. Most people understand prime agricultural soils, right? Most people understand environmentally sensitive lands, but explain the culturally or and or historically important lands and where you've been and you've seen and you've been taken through some of these areas. Well, basically, uh, th- this can be anything that has a, a historical or cultural significance. You can be talking about a rural legacy area where the county views that this area it has largely minimized its development, may have uh, view sheds or vistas similar to, to what it was in colonial times and want to preserve that, and that they get tourists coming in who want to see those vistas. They mm-hmm. don't want to see hundreds of acres of solar panels. They want what 
John Smith saw back when he arrived or others, other things. Um, you have on the Eastern Shore now the Harriet Tubman Museum and Trail, and there have been a couple of proposed solar developments that would directly impact the views of that trail. And that I think that takes away something historically when you have somebody who wants to see I want to go and stand in this spot and see what Harriet Tubman and the people she was helping to free saw, mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, I'm seeing hundreds of acres of solar fields. It would be the same thing as if you were to put housing development there. Uh, solar, putting these utility scale solar panels on is development. It's a different type of development, and it has different advantages and drawbacks than residential development. But it still has the same effect when you put them on these lands. Another issue coming up with environmental lands that I think will need to be addressed is what happens when you have a utility-scale solar facility going into a critical area. Mm-hmm. And and does that mean that because then that land is developed, does that mean that a, a jurisdiction has to use up some of their development potential within that critical area that's allotted by the state. That's an unclear issue to date. Now, can you explain critical area for folks who may not know exactly what you're talking about? The critical area is basically any land that's within 1,000 feet of the Chesapeake Bay, the Atlantic Bay, or any of their major tributaries. The issue there is there's a certain amount that you can develop within the critical area, and solar generation facilities, the issue would be, does that count? toward your allotment? Is that the best way to put it? That's correct. Does it account towards your local allotment of development within those critical areas? Okay. Les, I think we've covered a lot of the issues with um, renewable energy in Maryland, some of the challenges that it presents currently, and then looking down the road, if the renewable energy portfolio standard is raised, which it very well could be, and then especially if that energy is required to be generated within Maryland, because as you said right now, we import a lot of that energy, but if it's required to be generated here, obviously we're going to have to come up with areas to put these utility-scale solar farms, if you will, because there's going to be that need to have it generated in Maryland. Um, any other issues that you want to talk about moving forward that you see in terms of renewable energy for the 2018 legislative session before we, we close out here today? I think the only other major thing at this point beyond what we've discussed is keep in mind that the grid is the ultimate limiter on where you can put and and locate some of these facilities because you if you don't have the grid capacity it's just not going to work and it is not cost effective uh these projects cannot be economically viable if they have to run high voltage lines um more than a few acres or half a mile to connect to the grid That changes, though, as the grid is updated, and there are several proposals through uh, PGM, which is kind of the manager of the grid for a number of northeastern states, including Maryland, that that we could see some higher voltage lines being uh, constructed in the state in the future, and that will change the landscape of where solar can go. So this is not a static one-time exercise. It's something that just like any good land use and planning uh, activity, you will have to revisit because things are going to change the quote-unquote demographics of solar and where these other renewable projects can go will change over time. Okay, so let me just insert a shameless plug here. 
Uh, the Mako Winter Conference is December 6th through the 8th in Cambridge, Maryland at the Hyatt there. That's next week, unless I'm sure you're going to have some panels and discussions that focus on uh, land use issues and some of these issues that we've talked about today. There will be a little bit. Uh, we're, we're really focusing for this conference on climate change mm-hmm. issues and the impacts and, and where the state is going and where they're going to may want local governments to go with that. And then we're also having a panel on the state development plan. Uh, this is the new plan called a better Maryland that is going to replace the state's previous development plan called plan Maryland. Yes. So again, the, the winter conference upcoming, if you're not registered, you got to get down there. There's great content and opportunity to really uh, get to know your, your fellow local government officials and state officials and just to, an incredible opportunity to take a lot of great ideas and bring them back and implement them in your counties and your jurisdictions. I want to thank you all for listening today to the Conduit Street Podcast. I want to thank Les for joining us today. Michael Sanderson should be back for our next episode. But for now, we hope you all have very happy holidays. We hope to see you next week at the conference. Les, any closing thoughts? No, just take care, everyone, and hope you have a happy holiday. Thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you all soon.